A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. another episode of The Nuanced Life. We are in the middle of a membership drive for The Nuanced Life. We have created a new Patreon page just for this podcast in which for $5 a month, you get an extra episode every month of The Nuanced Life. We're really excited. We've had lots of supporters. We thank everyone who's already signed up. But if you'd like a little more nuance in your life, see what I did there? Then you can go to patreon.com forward slash The Nuance Life. It really helps us grow this show. It helps us um, get additional help improving the sound quality, additional help lining up interviews and contests and giveaways and all the fun things that make this community um, grow and expand and reach new listeners. So if you're interested in supporting The Nuance Life, go to patreon.com forward slash The Nuance Life. We are going to do something a little different today because we've had several interviews. We haven't had as much time to go through listener feedback as usual. And y'all have had a lot to say about everything we've been discussing. So we're going to go through some messages and it's just going to be kind of a big grab bag of nuanced conversation today. I would like to call it Feedback Palooza. Feedback Palooza. I like to call I like to put Palooza on the thing in the things. It makes it more fun. It's totally more fun. Feedback Palooza it is. We're putting that as the episode title. Hooray. So we still continue to get the ways that you guys break the rules, which I think is so fun. For anyone who hasn't listened to that episode or several episodes since that we've talked about this, um, one of my dear friends is a nutritional coach, and she said women often use – women are very much rule followers for the most part. And so we often use unhealthy food as a way to be like, I've been taking care of everybody else all day, and I want this brownie, and I'm going to have it. I'm going to break the rules. This is like my way to break the rules. Which kind of stinks because sometimes it's really harming us. It's affecting our energy level. And so she suggested that we find other ways to, quote, unquote, break the rules. So I shared on the podcast that one of the ways I break the rule is I leave the house without a bra on and I go to the movies in the middle of the day. But y'all have been sending in your ways, which I think is really, really fun. So we got an email from Becca who said that one of the ways she breaks the rules is... I like to be on time, not 15 minutes in her personal and professional lives. Not 15 minutes early means on time, but more I walk in and we begin kind of on time because my husband and I work in two different cities and live in another. Most of my week requires sticking to a rigid schedule. We have to leave the house in a small window of time in order for me to take my daughter to daycare and get to my work on time. We have to leave daycare and work by a certain time in order to have a good meal at home and get my daughter in bed on time. Whether I'm teaching a yoga cast or working with high school students or meeting with university professionals, I recognize that most people value their time and may have equally as rigid schedules. So the naughtiest thing I can do is to be purposefully late. If I don't have a meeting to attend or a deadline to meet, then I relish snoozing the alarm one more time, actually sitting down for a few minutes of breakfast and not rushing my three-year-old into getting dressed and running out the door. Those 20 additional minutes of defiance helps in many ways because I'm reminded of my autonomy. I'm humbled by the fact that work continues without my presence, and I'm able to recognize that flexibility of time is a gift and a privilege. And I had never thought about this, but I think I do that too. I'm sort of notoriously late. Not when I'm meeting an individual person, but to things that like don't require my presence to start. I read this and related to it so much because my life for a decade just felt like beat the clock constantly. It still does in some ways, but less so. But when I was trying to get out the door every day, exactly what Becca says, 
dropping a kid off at daycare, making sure everybody gets home in time, dealing with a commute, dealing with meetings all day. I would have days when it was just back to back to back meetings. And so, yes, any time that I can cherish a little time by myself is Mm -hmm. a very big deal. And I still do this. Like there are times when I just take a little longer washing the dishes, you know, because I just need that headspace on my own before I move on to the next thing. Um, I try not to be late for meetings just like Becca, because I do think being on time is a way of showing other people respect. But when it isn't necessary, it feels so good. I even like making sure that we show up to a movie like in the middle of the previews, right? Oh, yeah. Being there super early. That's just pure defiance against my stepfather who is maniacal about getting there super early before the movie starts. I don't want to watch their stupid commercials before they show me more commercials for the movies coming. Thanks, but no thanks. Well, so someone else said, and this is the person who asked the question about other ways to break the rules. (laughs) She said, now, the more I've been thinking about it and hearing these examples, the angrier I'm getting about the stupidity of the rules that are used (laughs) as examples. And I mean, amen to that. Like, it's it's true. I think this is Sarah. Yeah, it's seasonal Sarah who started this conversation off on us. I think that's great. And I think that that's a really important point. And she said at the end, I want to figure out ways to create more space for stuff that gives me energy and brings me life, regardless of what other people think or do. I want to chat with your personal trainer friend to see what she thinks about that idea now, because I think Sarah said that she told you that out of college. I wonder if maturity and experience has changed that advice at all. I also don't like rules in general, so perhaps this whole frustration of mine is just the nature of my personality. I get it, Sarah. Where I struggled with seasonal Sarah's take on this, though, is the matter I get about the rules, the more I relish breaking them. The more I'm like, this is a stupid rule. Men don't have to wear makeup. So breaking, you know, yeah, I'm definitely not going to wear makeup now. So it doesn't make me, it, it just makes me relish breaking the rules. It doesn't really make me mad at the idea of breaking the rules in general. I'm just like, oh, yeah, this is a dumb rule. So I'm definitely breaking it now. Men don't have to worry about makeup and bras and all this stuff. So why should I? I think there are two things going on here. One, it is true that we live under a lot of dumb rules. And I think the exercise of breaking those rules is in many ways stepping back to say, have I consciously or unconsciously allowed this in my life? And when you decide to consciously allow it, then it's not a dumb rule anymore because you recognize Mm -hmm. its value. So true. And when you've unconsciously allowed it in your life, then you say, well, I'm going to break that rule. And maybe I feel a little bit good about myself mm-hmm. for doing that, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's less of I want to accept all the standards of society that drive me nuts and more just bringing some awareness to those things and figuring out I'm an adult human and I can do what I please. Yeah, but the problem is I can't do what I please. And that's probably a topic for another show. This whole idea that, like, we're adults, we can do what we want. Well, that's not even true. Well, say more about that. Because, you know, first of all, I'm married. So there's like this whole other adult person I have to coordinate and collaborate and calibrate with all the time. Then I have all these tiny humans that are total just little, you know, hanger-ons that live in my house. I have to figure out what they need and meet their needs and do what they want. Then I have people who, like, give me money for things. Definitely got to do that stuff. Then I have people that are just I'm responsible to in my community. I just feel like there's like a big old long list of people i got to check with before I really can do what I want. Well, yeah, I think that's true. But I think what I think here's what I think freedom is. I have this great quote from my pastor. It was so good. I tweeted from the pew, which I never do. But she said on Sunday that she was talking about fruits of the spirit and how we do not have freedom spiritually in order to be jerks. And she said, you know, freedom is different from license to do whatever you want without regard for how it impacts other people. But I think that there is freedom in just recognizing, yes, I have all these people, but I chose those people and those things. Mm -hmm. So sometimes my marriage keeps me from doing exactly what I want, but I chose my marriage and I choose it every day affirmatively. I could choose otherwise. Like I could make different decisions that are really obnoxious to my husband about finances or how we're going to spend time or something we're going to do at our house. I could throw out his chair that I don't like, but I'm choosing not to do those things because I choose to prioritize this relationship that I chose to enter into. So for me, the more I can get my head around, yes, there are constraints on my life, but I picked those two and it is available to me to do. It is available to me to ignore my children all day. I will not like the results of that and they won't either. But it is an option that's out there. You know, I this, do have choices. This is the lecture I was always giving my friends in high school. 
Like, I would always say, like, yeah, I could definitely sneak out and disobey my parents. But then they're going to catch me, and then my life is going to be way harder, and I'm going to feel even more pinned in and less free than I do already. So why would I do that? You know, it's like that. It's like you say, like, yeah, I have the choice to, you know, make my husband angry and then have to deal with, like, the push and pull of relationship when both people want something different and just, you know, throw a bomb in things over something I don't care about that much. But it's so, like, ugh, it's not even worth it. Well, and look, I think this is why many of us as women do make our rule-breaking choices around food Mm -hmm. because that is the place that really only affects us. Right. And then I think to the point that you've made a lot, Sarah, as we get older, it affects us a lot and it is a lot less worth it. Mm -hmm. I I can have three glasses of wine tonight. I will not feel good in the morning. You know, it's available to me, but it's not worth it. So the calculus changes at different moments in your life about what's worth it and what's not worth it. And it's so such a bummer because I really had in my head that as we got older, like I could sort of be a little bit harder on my body. I guess I guess I just felt like, well, you get older and your body gets like kind of tougher. It's like you build up calluses. No, y'all, it's like the total opposite. Such a long con, this whole nutrition thing. Well, sleep is similar to that, right? Because I think I always thought I would get older and need less sleep, and I am not finding that to be the case at all. So we got a message from Shannon who says she is a guardian of her sleep. I love that. I'm going to borrow that phrase. I'm a guardian. And and then she says, I listen to my body. So if I'm tired, Mm -hmm. I'll skip a day. If I'm hungry, I'll eat. Yeah. You know, but sometimes the body confuses thirst, hunger, and tiredness. So I try to drink water first and see how that goes. Man, and I think I need that, to do that. that kind of relationship is so good. Yeah, that's such a good strategy. Drink water first. I don't do that, and I really should. I think drinking water, getting up and moving a mm-hmm. lot is, for me, just critical. And it doesn't even have to be big movement. Just yeah, just a walk. Literally, like, stand up, take a little walk, go outside mm-hmm. for a second. Mm-hmm. It's so true. It's so, so, so true. Megan also wrote us about decision fatigue and frugality, which is a a couple episodes ago we wanted to share it. She said, I'm catching up, and I wanted to share something I do that touches on both decision fatigue and frugality. My husband, Ben, and I use the app Wonderlist for everything. We struggle with decision fatigue and are constantly working on saving money. This helps us for both and is great because it can be shared by multiple people. The app is used to create lists. We use it for to-do list and to-buy list. If we are in the kitchen and realize we are running low on bread, we will add it to the shopping list. If we are discussing how busy our next week will be and have a list of things we need to do, we create a list for that week and then select a due date and individual responsible for each of them. This has really changed how we shop and spend our time. Instead of going to the grocery store to walk around, we update the app beforehand with exactly what we are getting. Instead of buying clothes that I may not need, I have a personal list of clothes that I would like to add or replace. That's awesome. That's good advice. I've used that list on and off. I just struggle with it, even though I'm in my phone all the time, when I try to externalize to an app in my phone and, and the follow through is always really not real, not great. I just, I either need to write it down or I do pretty well with telling like Alexa or Siri things. If I can speak it, that works pretty good for me as well. Yeah. I think you just have to find your own path for externalizing things. And I also think for me, it varies week to week. There are some weeks where I can make a list in an app and really be dedicated to it. And other weeks where I just need it on a post-it note or an index card or something. And I agree with you, whatever it is, like if I can just say it and get it out of my mind, I feel much better. I have started speaking almost everything. Like I rarely type responses to email anymore. I just like using my voice and I feel like I have a better interaction with people when I use my voice. And I like it when people do that for me too. Like I don't mind at all to get a voice message through email. Now I don't want a voice message on my phone. This is a confusing thing. If I, if I get a voice message where someone has called me and left a message, it stresses me out enormously because something about my mindset perceives urgency. Mm. But if someone shoots me a, a voice message through Voxer or through email, then I feel like, well, they know that I'll get to it when I get to it, and that's fine. I don't know what it is. Like, the way that I make all these distinctions around technology is pretty silly, but it's very important to me. I don't really like to type on my phone. That's why I don't do things in an app like that. Because when I really want to brain dump, I need to be able to do it quickly. So I either need to type on a computer, but really writing works best. I just don't like to type long things on my phone. And that's where I get in trouble with email because I open up my email and I check it, but then I don't want to respond to my phone. I really should just, like, delete the email app from my phone. But I can't do that either. You know, it's such a struggle. Such a struggle all the time. It's a struggle. That's why I'm speaking everything now. I just walk around talking to my phone all day. I work (laughs) the voice memo app like nobody's business to myself, to other people, to just get some things out of my head. It's good. I mean, Gmail needs to get on incorporating that into the the 
reply option, like a text message. You know? Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Get on a Gmail. Really Hello, idea. Gmail guys. We know you're listening. Don't even try to th- don't even try to lie and say you're not listening to this podcast and everything we do on the internet. So we know you're out there. We know you're here. So make that happen. Thank you. <laughs> Integrate Voxer into all things. That's yeah. what we need. So we also got an email from Sarah who wanted to talk to us a little bit about the episode we did on the glamorization of work. She said, expanding on the privilege part of the conversation, I think there needs to be some more differentiation between people who are workaholics because they see work as a virtue and those who work much more than they want to just to make ends meet and provide the bare minimum. It's a sad part of life that so many people are in that latter situation. As for me, I'm somewhere in the middle. Given my circumstances and where I am in my career, I cannot work any less than what I'm doing, but I can work for my home part of the time and have a good amount of PTO. I'm Definitely blessed. I just hope that people who can work less recognize the ability to do so is a precious gift. Absolutely. And, you know, we got a a bunch of feedback on this episode that shows how people are in really different places with regard to work. Mm -hmm. So it's not so there's the privilege aspect of being able to be self-employed or work remotely or have some flexibility or have uh, financial flexibility. There is the aspect of people who really want to work forever in high intensity environments and are struggling to stay with that because Mm -hmm. the workplace hasn't adjusted to allow everyone to do that. You know, we got a really great email from Kelsey about this and about how like there are, there are lots of people and, and I think Kelsey is exactly right. Like companies are losing out by not embracing employees who need, who, who need or want a different life. Mm-hmm. And I see this all the time in my coaching work. There are, there are people out there with incredible gifts, incredible talent, great ideas, I, an earnest passion for their work. And companies are stuck in the filter of, if you don't practically live in the office, you must not be committed. And I think people are really dishonest about the way they spend their time in the office, too. Mm-hmm. You know, there are lots of people who spend 12 hours a day in an office, but they're not working those 12 hours. You know, there's an element of socialization. And sure, that can enhance work, but so can some space from work. You know, your, your perspective can really be enhanced by walking away a little bit. I just think we haven't learned how to look at a plurality of experiences in the workplace yet and recognize that th- there is validity to the different ways people work. The, the, the question shouldn't be, how do we work here? It should be, how do the people who work here do their best work for us? I was listening to Revisionist History. It started back up again. It's one of my favorite podcasts by Malcolm Gladwell. And he did a debate with Adam Grant, the social scientist who's, you know, sort of a bit, he's he's having a moment, I'd say. And they were talking about work. And Malcolm Gladwell shared the, mo- Malcolm Gladwell shared the most interesting sort of personal history. He said that his mother often went to employers and would say basically, um, I'm really excited to work here. I'm really going to work hard for you, but I want to work basically half time because I will work harder and do and accomplish more if you just let me be happy and live the life I want to live. And when I'm here, I'll pour it all into it. And he said for the most part, he she was able to do that. And then his father at one point, who was, I think, a mathematician, got an invitation to come teach at Yale. Like, big deal, right? So he's Canadian. He goes down. He visits Yale. They're all waiting with bated breath to come back and say, you know, how to go. We're going to move to New Haven, basically. And he said that his father was like, uh, well, I got there at nine and they were all at their desk and I left at five and they were all at their desk. And I thought, I don't want to work here. Like he just, and he didn't even go to Yale because he was just like, no, no, that's not, that's not the life I want. That's not how I want to work. And, you know, considering Malcolm Glad was a pretty smart dude, I would think his parents were both pretty smart. And so the employers who figured out they're worth it and the ones who couldn't see path, you know, passing into their nose despite their face or whatever the expression is like they lost out right I mean when you can see the different ways and the different needs of people in order to build a good company or a good team and honestly I don't even think it's sort of the unique individual I think increasingly people don't want to work like that whether they have to whether they want to whether the career they want to work in requires it I think there's so much pushback I mean you hear that in the medical community that residents now are like mm, no I don't want to do that like I'll I'll be here I'll be great but I'm not going to work like you want me to work it's dangerous and I don't want to so I, I think it's really I think this is the ideas around work are shifting and the flexibility people want um, are becoming more cultural than just sort of individual I hope so, because we burn through really great people in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. It's not just, do I want to work from home or do I want to work this many hours? It's also, how am I going to dress? Do I... 
do I just work in a way that people around me don't understand and it makes me feel like the other person in the office in a way that's super uncomfortable? It's we give you this much vacation, but we don't really want you to take it. It's there are just millions of tiny little messages that group dynamics in an office create that subtly and over time chip away at the engagement of a really super person who could be contributing a lot to the organization. And I think that until we remember, I was just talking about this with a group of people, actually, until we remember that we are all adults, exactly what we were just talking about in terms of breaking the rules. We are adults. So we've got to stop designing our workplaces with the kind of mentality that we use to keep children in order in schools. So true. And schools are doing a better job realizing that that's not a good plan either. You know, we we just need to give each other some room and trust people to figure out what they need to do their best work. And are there going to be people who don't do their best work and who take advantage of those systems? Absolutely. But if you are designing for the lowest common denominator, you will never get the best. That is a stupid place to put your energy. We also got a really good message from Amy that I thought was really to the point on this, which she said, you know, she was talking about the glamorization of work and she talked about being in her company who'd really made room for her flexibility, but that she saw the way in which she was sort of the exception that proved the rule, which is we should 100% all look in the mirror and try to adjust our approach to work. And you two are both great examples, but we also need to restructure company incentives from the top down and make employees as important as stakeholders, as shareholders, before we see real change. I love my job and I don't want to choose a whole new career to find the right culture. I want the job I have and love to work for me and the people who work for me. I think that's such a good, when she said that, I was like, man, that is so true. When you're always chasing that and chasing the shareholder, um, incentive and to always get money to the shareholder, then why would you ever prioritize, you know, employees? I thought that was a really, some of this is structural. It's not just cultural. It's hugely structural. We were sitting on the couch last night flipping through the news and we heard someone commenting on how Donald Trump is a real estate person and in his heart, all real estate people are always chasing the next deal and looking to get the best deal and whatever. And Chad said, you know, I get that. And I also feel like the conversation has just become capitalism is horrible and everybody who's a capitalist is looking to take advantage and suck everything out of the other person. And I just don't think that's true. And I said, you know what I've been thinking about, Chad? I feel like one of the things that Congress should really be thinking about right now is shareholder liability mm-hmm. <laughs> because we have different laws in different states about what duties corporate officers in particular owe to shareholders And I think it is not unreasonable for many entities to feel that their whole purpose is to maximize profit because of those shareholder liability laws. Mm -hmm. And maybe a structural thing we ought to take a look at is creating a little bit more ease and a little bit more expansive understanding of business judgment and making sure that, yes, you should act in the best interest of your shareholders, but maybe we need to define that much more broadly. Yeah. Because I do think we're on a real downward spiral in constantly seeking to squeeze every penny out in the short term that we can. And I don't think this is specific to any business or industry. I think as a whole, there's a reason people are souring on capitalism. And I and I think capitalism is still the best system in the world, but it's not capitalism with the absence of any judgment. And I feel like when we think that our whole reason for existence is maximizing short term shareholder profits, then we have capitalism without any judgment. Mm -hmm. And and we treat our employees accordingly. And that is a recipe for long term disaster. I was reading we're getting a little bit into pansy politics territory, but I was reading this really interesting article about. Um, Britain and how it's very changing under um, the really strict budget cutbacks they've made. And it was talking about, I mean, sort of capitalism and like sort of what Chad's saying, like, why are we, everything's about capitalism's bad. But you know what? Like, in our current time, every institution is being questioned. Why should Mm -hmm. capitalism be any different? We're rethinking church. We're trying to rethink school. We're rethinking marriage. We're rethinking all these different things. And I don't understand why capitalism should escape that sort of deep examination as our world and our lives change. 
I just watched this fantastic TED Talk about the sharing economies in parts of Africa that fold into capitalism. So you do have essentially a, a capitalist economy in the meaning of the government isn't interfering in it and, you know, private industry kind of sets the market. But it is deeply culturally ingrained that you apprentice with a business and then that business for two years supports you as you get your own business launched. And this is just part of the culture. There, There is a culture of generosity in addition to a traditional capitalist model. So these options are available to us. We just have to take them. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is part of what workplaces need to realize too, because we conduct ourselves in many workplaces. And I'm hard on human resources because I've been part of that now. We get so wrapped up in the rules and in compliance and in worrying about the worst case scenario. We do a horrible job with super talented people. And we do a horrible job with average people because it's like a teacher who focuses all of her attention on the one student who won't listen in class. And everybody Mm -hmm. else gets lost. And I think that until we realize that your most productive time in an organization is spent with your best people instead of your worst people, we're going to we're just going to continue to make dumb mistakes. And the worst part, it's not just dumb. It's exclusive. Mm. You cannot have real diversity in an organization, real diversity of representation, real diversity of thought and the kind of great results that real diversity produces until you make space for people working differently. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. So we also wanted to share some feedback we've gotten about the way we discuss Enneagram from Allie, who is like Enneagram mecca right now she she's she says she describes it deep in the enneagram world because suzanne stable who was the podcast we were referencing her husband is a colleague of Allie's, and so she is like deep in the enneagram journey and she wanted to encourage us to think about it more as a spiritual tool and not just as an identification and that sometimes we talk about it a little with a we could talk about it with a little more nuance she says once you type yourself and for most folks they will tell you this is at least takes a few months you begin the enneagram process not end it anyway i just would like to see a little bit more nuance when it comes to the spiritual tool in hopes that it doesn't become widely misused also i completely recognize that both of you probably see the enneagram like this but i just like to see the language match that nuance she's right and i really just want to be like this is the enneagram one of me i like black and white things so i'm like <laughs> doing it again she's totally right though and what i've really been doing i've been getting that enneagram emails every morning the little quick Enneagram thought based on your type and that's really encouraged me to just like think about it every day as a tool and just think through this and kind of has a as a filter through which to see everything and it's been really really awesome so she's totally right and I've also it also reminds me that um, we got another email that people that a a minister encouraged me to stop talking about being on Episcopal like being on a team (laughs) I'm working on it y'all I'm working on all those things (laughs) I didn't know about that email. That's funny. Yeah, she was like, stop talking about it like that. It's not helpful. And I'm like, and then the funniest part was um, she, which she's right. I shouldn't talk about it on the team. And then I, my husband was like, I don't know. I feel like Anglicans do need a little cheerleader. We never cheerleader ourselves. We need a little former Baptist in there cheerleading for us. <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Every All shorthand can be problematic. And I think that's just something that we struggle with constantly and a a risk of putting your voice out into the world is that sometimes you're just going to use some shorthand and it's going to get misinterpreted somewhere. And I hope that our contribution is in saying, yep, I can see how you took it that way. Sorry about that. We'll try to do better. Well, in that speaking of- We're going to constantly be in that cycle though, right? Yes. (laughs) This was so sweet. Somebody emailed me and said, I was thinking about Sarah being an Enneagram woman, how she can't help but ask, how can this be better, especially when it comes to family meals and special days? As an Enneagram 4, I ask a similar question. What's missing? Fours tend to look for gaps, and in doing so, sometimes miss the good right in front of us. Many times, the answer to what's missing is me. I'm missing. I'm not fully engaged with the people in front of me, and I'm missing the piece I was looking And I'm the missing piece I was looking for. Similarly, I'm sure that sometimes the answer to Sarah's what makes this better question is Sarah. <laughs> 
makes me cry. Sarah's full presents will make it better. Our fully engaged presents without daydreaming about a better restaurant, more delicious recipe, or more exciting out, out outing makes those things better. We are often the answer to our own question. <laughs> So beautifully so said. So beautifully said. Oh, so beautifully said. This is something that yoga has been life-changing for me mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. Because understanding, especially in my body, which just hurts a lot. I mean, I've been dealing with fibromyalgia for years. I, I probably always will. And so there are times when I'm just angry at my body because it hurts. And there's not an explanation for it. And there's not an easy way to make it stop. So learning through yoga how good I can feel just by paying attention to that good feeling has been really transformative. To be able to just lie down and pay attention to the way it feels that my heart is beating and blood is rushing around Mm -hmm. my body and that sense where I feel like I'm floating in the ocean but I'm not moving and that I can have that whenever I want. And I know that all kind of sounds trite and maybe sort of out there. But that has been really big for me to understand that. And I think when you understand that about your own body, then you're able to apply it more to other situations. And so I am able, like yesterday, we had like a too fun weekend and my girls had fun hangovers, you know. And so I've got these tired kids who are like covered in popsicle juice and whatever. And so I'm picking up Ellen and she is just putting her face within centimeters of mine screaming into my face. Oh, my Lord. And I did not feel disturbed by that the way that I normally would have. I think because I have been much more faithful to my yoga practice lately. And I realized, like, look at this precious little thing yelling her head off at me. (laughs) Look at all these emotions that she just can't contain. And I'm not going to feel that way every time. I certainly don't. I absolutely lost my temper a couple times over the weekend, too. But that practice of going back and, and getting that just being here, it's all fine. And there's something beautiful in all of it. And we can deal with it is just really helpful for me. Meditation really helps me. And I've had a couple instances recently where I could see, I literally was just watching my emotions get fired up and I could feel my brain go, well, you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to fix this. You need to address this. You need to make these people see how wrong they were to treat you like this. Like I could feel it all doing it. And for the first time ever, instead of just diving right through the middle of it, I felt this other voice go, hey, cool. Just that's cool. Look what you're doing there. Just sit back and watch what you're doing there. It was a quiet voice. I really had to tune into it and listen to it really, really hard. But I was able to, like, not react immediately, which was, you know, it's not that I have never haven't seen any progress over the last few years since I've done yoga and meditation. But this was like a definitely a very different experience where right in the midst of it, not like a little bit after when I was journaling that night or the next morning, like right in the middle of it, I could feel myself go, oh, look, look what you're doing there. Just watch it. You don't have to do anything about it. Just watch it. And it was sort of eye opening. The image that I use for myself about what you're describing is a brush fire. And I see myself just adding sticks and I'll and I'll just ask myself, like, how much are you going to build this, Beth? Mm. Like, how much more do you want to put on here? When are you going to be done and let it all fall apart and just let it all melt down? Because I I think we have to do this. It's not that I'm never going to get riled up again for the rest of my life. I definitely am. It's just knowing that that's what I'm doing and that I can choose to get out of it. And I can choose to stay in it for a second, too, and just work through it. Yeah, it's like a wave, man. Like, you just got to ride it. I just was like, I couldn't run away from it. I wasn't going to try to numb it, which I think is another response that a lot of us take, too. Like, we feel it instead of, I'm just an action-oriented person, so the second I feel wrong, I'm like, well, I will burn down the world to make this right, because I feel a sense of unfairness. I think there's also a temptation to just sort of turn away from it, and I thought, no, I can't do that either. Like, I just have to witness it. I mean, it, again, I know that I bring up labor, but it's such a good, it, it's such a good analogy. Like that's sort of what labor is like. Like you can't run away from the contraction. You just have to be like, okay, I'm just going to sit through this. Cool. Cause that's how the baby gets out. So I, that was really good practice. And it's sort of like what I think about in those moments where I really just want to give into the ego temper tantrum, but I can't, I can't run away from it. I just have to sort of dive through the middle of it, which is intense. I think this transitions nicely to an email that we got that I just loved. And I don't know the name of the person who sent this to us. We just got it through the website. But it's it's so great that I'm going to read a lot of it. 
Being a white, straight, cis Christian guy makes life pretty easy, relatively speaking, but alas, life sucks for everyone. All caps. He capitalized every life sucks for everyone, which I thought was Which strong, is amazing. Which was a strong TM. choice. Yeah. <laughs> Living in the D.C. area with all the exceptionalism that drove Sarah away, having an introverted and very unindustrious personality, and coming to this juncture in my life where everything is changing, that's hard. And I still don't feel I'm working enough. I'm not ready to move out of my parents' house. I don't have a full-time job lined up, and everything needs to get done, done, done. And in the midst of all this, my mother and my girlfriend have suggested separately that a good graduation present might be a week's paid vacation off without any kind of obligation before I enter the workforce proper. What I say in response is, be nice, but I really need a computer. This laptop suffering after four years of use and abuse. What I didn't say was what a little voice in my head was saying. I can't take time off. I'm already a lazy bum. Look at my girlfriend. She's cleaning her apartment while I'm sucking myself into a video game. She's got a full-time job and she comes home to do this. I can't be this lazy or I'll end up like one of those horrible lazy men who lets their wives do all the things and ruins his kid's childhood. You know it could happen, which I guess is a bit much for a 22-year-old to be thinking. But when you have an almost 32-year-old girlfriend, oh, that's right. I need to finish preparing for her birthday. This is why I appreciate the nuanced life. I think there are a few pressure points that would make life immeasurably better for Americans if we fix them. Our food is probably top of the list, but close Mm -hmm. behind that is this insane work ethic that makes people feel like they've never done enough. It's like personal beauty. Okay, I'm looking better than I used to, but look at that person walking by. They're so much better looking than I am, which means I'm worthless. Whoa, hold on. First off, by whose standards are you uglier, less worthy than that person? Second, why is there a moral boost in working more slash looking better? Third, don't you think that person feels the same way about somebody else? We're driving ourselves absolutely crazy and we have no chance to stop and think about it because the sugar clouds our thoughts and the roller coaster keeps going and going. So we can never get off and ask ourselves if there might be a better way to run our lives. I sure hope we figure it out before we all crash and burn. So good. I feel like all the things that are in everyone's head just came out in that email. It's so true. You know what it reminds me of? I, have I talked about Michael Pollan and psychedelics on Nuance Life yet? Uh, I've heard you talk about it, but I can't remember where. We just talk too much now. I yeah. can't remember what I've said anywhere. Okay, good. Well, I'm just going to repeat it because I think it's so important. So Michael Pollan has written a new book. For those of y'all who aren't Michael Pollan super fans like me, he wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma, Food Rules. He was like really – he's a journalist, but he kind of took on nutritional science and all the things they get wrong and uh, just totally changed the way I eat. I love him. So his new book is on psychedelics, which I'm currently a little bit obsessed with. I just It just came out. I just got off the hold list at the library, and I can't wait to start reading it. But I've listened to all the interviews he's done about it. He did a really long interview with Tim Ferriss about it. And he talked about this one scientist sort of unifying theory of mental health, which we really don't have. And mental health has – mental health care has terrible outcomes. They're just – we don't – we really haven't figured out what we're doing. We're not successfully treating very many people. All these interesting things. Okay. So he says we have this default mode in our brain, which is the ego, what we were just talking about that kind of pitches a fit sometimes, that sees us as the subject and everything else as the object. That's sort of our default mode for life. And my additional theory on top of this guy's theory is the reason our default mode in the modern day is sort of pushing us into mental ill health is because we don't have sort of the traumas and struggles of past times to pull us out of that out of that ego mode and make us pay attention to something besides ourselves. So we don't have famine or war or all the sort of things that used to make people struggle and strive and get out of that. I'm the subject and everybody else is the object. So when that becomes too rigid, this theory of mental health, so if it goes one way, it becomes too rigid. And that default mode is too, it's getting used too much and too powerful. And our ego is sort of commanding our life. And that can either be through an obsession with the past, which manifests as depression, sort of an obsession with the future, which can manifest as anxiety, or a desire to numb that voice, which can lead to addiction. On the other side of the spectrum, if that default mode is not powerful enough, you get sort of magical thinking or voices, um, schizophrenia, stuff like that. So if you scan the brains of hardcore meditators, people who meditate for hours, you will see a quieting of that area, the default mode of the brain, a quieting of that area. You also see that with people who take psychedelics. When they would scan the brains of people who take psychedelics, because they're, they're working through some more advanced trials. Right now I think they're in the third stage of trials to help PTSD and help treat some of these mental illnesses with psychedelics. And what you see is not that it fires up this other part of the brain, which I think is for everybody's sort of perception, but that it quiets that default mode. And he talks about his own experiences. He did ayahuasca and LSD and uh, psilocybin and how that helped him, gave him that, that a, a better 
more powerful experience to quiet those moments where his ego starts to take over and he can just say, no, I see what you're doing there and it's cool. I'm just going to let that play out. Sort of what we were just talking about. And it's what it reminds me, this, this email reminds me of the same thing. Like we get our default modes are just, they're running wild with our lives. I feel like we, in our modern era, we talk about this a lot. We're just too comfortable. <laughs> and the, 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 Result of all this comfort is that this part of our brain, our, our egos are getting, and that, that voice in our head that tells us we're the subject of everything, um, is driving us all crazy. I think somehow we feel like we are slaves to whatever we know about ourselves in a given moment. And that's why we go crazy. So I look at my dog a lot because I heard Shirley MacLaine say to Oprah, and I thought this was so beautiful, that you can learn more from your animals than you realize if you pay attention to them. Mm-hmm. So I, I look at my dog all the time as just this model of you're okay. Like she wants to nap all day. She does. Word. She doesn't worry about whether she walked a little farther yet today than she did yesterday. <laughs> or she chased that ball a little faster today than she did yesterday. But that is sort of unwinding from a lot of elements of what makes humans different. Chad and I were just watching one of the episodes of Explained on Netflix that Vox does with Netflix is about it good? monogamy. I want to watch them. Are they good? Yeah, I mean it's good. It's very Voxish. I mean, if you like Vox, you'll like it, and if you don't, you probably won't. <laughs> but they're short, and I appreciate that. So we were watching the one on monogamy, and they were talking about how probably we're not really wired for monogamy mm-hmm. like it's it that's a hard thing but a cool thing about being human is that you can decide to go against your natural wiring thank you and there there can be something beautiful about that right i think the trouble is then it becomes well our job as humans is to fight everything mm. so we overcorrected maybe, you say that all the time we overcorrected yes and i think now like the thing that is really differentiating between me and my dog is a level of consciousness. And so I can recognize, okay, I've overcorrected, but that doesn't mean that I become, uh, I sleep all day because I feel like it. Cheat on my husband and I stop working or whatever. You know, there is a place that is a good place for each of us. And it's probably not a static place. That place probably Mm -hmm. moves a lot. And that's another thing that I think modern living has removed from us a little bit. We feel like, and and this reminds me of some emails we've gotten from people um, who who are younger than we are, who are thinking about building their resumes and making sure that they're able to get into a stable lifestyle. We talk about becoming an adult as settling, mm-hmm. like as actually coming to a place and stopping, yep. trying to get the house and the husband and the kids or whatever the vision looks like for you. And then you're just going to be there. Mm-hmm. And then I think that's why we all go into crisis mode in our late 30s and early 40s, because we're like, shoot, this is nice and all, but I don't want to be here forever. Yeah. What, what's it going to be like if I'm here forever? And this kind of gets to a question we got from Maggie about how do you sort of unwind from the treadmill of just going, going, going professionally? For me, at least, a huge part of the answer to that is a piece of advice I got from someone I worked with several years ago. And she said, listen, you just do what works while it works for you. And when it doesn't anymore, you do something different. Mm -hmm. And it was the most freeing thing anybody has ever said to me to realize I can choose to do this for now because it works best from the range of options that are available to me. Privilege kicks in here too, right? From the range of options that are actually available to me, given my circumstances and my priorities, here's what works best right now. That might not be true next month and that is okay. We don't have to have this linear trajectory. Well, and I think, honestly, our education system, which is supposed to be training us to be adults, teaches us to think about adulthood like that. And it's sort of Mm -hmm. not awesome. The idea of, like, you, everything, you, all these, every choice you make today will get you to this grade, the linear track to the grade. And then the grades will pile up, and that path will get you to college. And all those grades line up in this very linear path, and then that path gets you to college. And then once you're in college, then you take more grades and you pick a major and we're linear, we're marching down day by day through the syllabus to the grades. Like it's just so stinking linear. And then by the end you pick the major and then maybe you go to more school and that's linear. And it's like, 
you know, I think a lot about some of the things that my husband did in Boy Scouts and how they were so much closer to the rite of passage that we need to get into adulthoods than the things that we do in public education. Like, he did that thing where they, like, sent him out to camp by himself. Like, which makes me a nervous wreck as a mother, but also kind of need that. You need to figure out, like, I just, even though I was an only child and I had a lot of independent time, I don't think I was given enough, like, a challenge instead of saying, complete this list to get the grade. I wasn't given a lot of, like, this is a challenge you need to meet. It is up to you how you meet it. Figure it out. You know, and I think that that's so much of what adult it is. It's not grades, which we're going to get to in our inspiration part at the end. This is going to be great. This is going to be a great um, callback at the end. But it's not grades. It's 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 so much more of a challenge than and a journey and than it is a checklist. And the worst thing I think about our education system is that message of you're done. Mm-hmm. You've graduated now. You don't need to learn anymore. Mm-hmm. You know all the things that you need to know. Mm-hmm. You don't know a fraction of the things that you need to know. Mm-hmm. I think we would be so much better off if all adults were in some kind of class at all times. I mean, I love it. I love to learn. I sort of, that's why there is so many opportunities now to do that. And honestly, I think that's a little bit what, why podcasting is so popular. Because it is sort of this these people in your head and you're always history podcast or Oprah Super Soul Sunday, whatever it is, you kind of are in a class or you have these little teachers in your head telling you things you wanted to know, you know? Yes. And we need that. Mm-hmm. I need that more all the time because the older I get, the more convinced I am that I don't know enough about anything. And I just want to constantly be learning more. And I think a really healthy thing that we could do for ourselves is not beat ourselves up. I'm inadequate. I don't know enough. Just, wow, there's a lot to know. And I want to know as much of it as I can. And I want to do that in ways that work for my life. Sometimes it's not going to be available to me. We can't all go back to college forever, even though I sort of wish that we could. That's okay. But in what way can I be learning something now? I say this a lot to people who feel really stuck in a job and are ready to move on, but don't have a place to move on to yet. Okay, what are you want to learn right now from the place that you're in? As soon as we kind of turn that light on, I can be learning here. There's an opportunity for me to grow no matter where I am. We can feel Mm -hmm. really differently about our circumstances, but it's an opportunity for me to grow in a way that I'm interested in, not in a way that meets some unrealistic standard that actually no one meets. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a long tie-in, but uh, a reach for a tie-in, but the message from um, this gentleman who's 22 reminded me of watching The Fourth Estate on Showtime. Have you watched it? Oh, I've not watched it. I'm so excited to start watching it. Okay, well, I'm just going to tell you that I don't think it's that interesting. Oh, no. But part of what makes it not so interesting is that it is a real reminder that even at an institution as embedded in our culture and news and politics as the New York Times, it's just a bunch of people Word. going to work every day mm-hmm. and answering the phone and typing things and changing words around. <laughs> I mean, it's just people doing stuff. And what I think is great about it is that it shows that these are just people doing stuff. And that also makes it not super compelling drama. And that's the point that I want to make, especially now that we all sort of have a personal brand that we share on social media I think there we have forgotten that we're all just people doing stuff. And we don't forgive ourselves or give ourselves any room or recognize that we're just in a particular season of life and another season is coming. We just have to, like, relax a little bit. And I don't think that means caring less. I think it actually means caring more. I think it means approaching yourself like a long-term project instead mm-hmm. of a short-term one that you're trying to drain everything out of. I think this is a good tie-in to a message we got from Abby. And she sent us an article I've been thinking about a lot. She says, we were ta- we've been talking about how your decisions in life don't mean you judge people who choose differently. Sarah shared an example of how her choice to have a home birth doesn't mean she judges those who choose differently. And I'm 100% on board with this approach. That said, sometimes I feel very judged by others for my decisions. That judgment often comes in the form of small, biting comments, whether it's related to Whole30, attachment parenting, you name it. Any thoughts on how to respond? Is it good to call out these comments, let them slide, march confidently with my choice? 
If you have time to read an article, I think this article dovetails nicely with this topic and pertains to so much more than parenthood. And she shared this art and life blog that we'll put in the show notes in a post called Pick a Hill to Die. And this woman is talking about how, you know, there's a lot of encouragement if you're on on social media, if you, you know, kind of have a messy house and you're feeling overwhelmed. And she says that's really good um, and that's really important. And we all need real grace when it comes to something like that. But she says, because the truth is that life in those moments, days, and seasons where the hardness of life becomes the excuse for all the ways we are failing our families turns into a perpetual state, something that needs to change. We oscillate between the picture-perfect social media mom who has it all together and the one who is reveling and having nothing together. Both are unhealthy. And I thought that was a very interesting perspective. And she goes on to say that she feels like the answer is just to pick what's important to you, to pick your hill to die on, which we've talked about on this show. And she talks about... um, that she's willing to hurl herself on and die on his TV. She does not let her son watch the TV with with a few exceptions. She talks about why that's important to her family, why she's picking that thing. And she says, picking your heel to die is about deciding who you are as a family. You cannot be everything. You should be some things. Should have some hills that structure what your family values. I have spent these first years of mother deciding who I am and who I am not, and that allows me to prioritize. And I think... I thought it was a really interesting article. I've thought about it a lot because I do think she is right. I think there is an aspect of online mommy culture, sort of which surfaces in the mommy wine culture you see, which is this sort of reveling in the having nothing together and and really villainizing people who seem to have it together. And I think that's where those biting comments comes back. If you sort of have claimed this idea that you're the person who doesn't eat healthy then you're going to bite back at people who are making healthy choices. Or if you're a person who thinks you're too busy to exercise, then you're going to bite back at the people who make that a priority in their lives. And so I do think that there is, we need to create some a spectrum and say like, well, that just doesn't, is that's not what you prioritize, but I do, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's not, doesn't mean I'm judging you. And I think the way she put that on a spectrum of prioritizing and values as opposed to teams, I think was really good. It was very helpful. I like that. I think it is good to be able to own some personality in who you are. And Mm -hmm. that's a lot of what priorities are. So true. Just deciding this is important to me. And then if you can look at other people as just interesting instead of competitors, Mm. that helps. So when I look at families who, I mean, we love TV in my house. When I think about families that make TV the hill they die on and they're not going to let children watch TV, I always think... Well, that is really interesting. I want to know more about that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, I'm not going to lie to you, people who make choices like that are super judgy. (laughs) I mean, that just happens. But I think think she's right, though, that people who don't also make, they're just, they're not judgy. I totally agree. They're defensive as all heck. Oh, listen, I interpreted a comment this weekend about me in a very defensive way. Because I took the comment as the person reacting to me as sort of little Miss Perfect. Mm. And so it was both of those things going on at one time, right? Mm-hmm. And then I realized, I talked to Chad about it. He was like, I do not think that's what this person meant. Be cool. But then I kind of thought, <laughs> even if it is what that person meant, I don't have to be weird about that. Yeah. Like, I can just be okay and and be aware that that's the lens some people see me through. And that probably says more about them than it does about me anyway. And that's okay. And I don't have to react to every single thing that comes my way. I can decide that that's just none of my business, that that's how this person interprets me, you know, if it is. And so if we can just approach things with a little bit of grace for ourselves and other people, I think that that helps. And that's a theme that we return to often. But the other thing is, like, those small biting comments, I think people who do that don't realize that they're doing it for Mm. the most part. I think that becomes a default, too. And that's why it's important. Like, one of the things that we die on in our family, we try very, very hard not to gossip. Mm. If we are talking about what's going on with other people, we try to do it in a way that is from a place of my intent is to figure out if I can help. And if I cannot help, I'm shutting it down. Mm Mm-hmm. And I die on that hill because I do think that's a habit that gets so deeply ingrained that you don't know that you're doing it anymore at some point. But listen, if you're a gossipy person and you enjoy that, I hope you're having a really good time. And if you're talking about me, I hope it's funny. Like, you do you. I, I'm not going to – I don't know. I just can't take responsibility for everybody around me. 
Well, and here's what I think. I, here's where I struggle because I'm like, you know, I probably should have been a social scientist. Because I'm a resource Sherpa, I see everyone's story and choices as a resource to be tapped. You know what I mean? Like, so when I say, when somebody says, oh, I ended up with a C-section I didn't want, my first question is, were you induced? Not because I'm judging their decision or whatever happened to be induced, because I have a little spreadsheet in my head in which I'm trying to figure out what leads to people who have C-sections they don't like. Not, I mean, you know, not like I'm actually a scientist who's going to tap that statistic, but just... You know, I have a lot of friends who say, this is what happened to me. This is what I wish wouldn't happen. I have a lot of pregnant people who ask me advice about birth. And so I say, okay, well, this is my friend who had a birth. Because especially I was doing this before I had a hospital birth because I was intrigued by the experience because so many people asked me for advice about that. I wanted to have those stories to tap, you know. So I'll say, well, this is what my friend Kate had. This is what she says was a mistake. This is what my friend Ashley had. This is what she says was a mistake. So take that as you may. These are the stories that I've gathered I'm just going to give them to you and you see what what applies to you and what doesn't. But like, man, if you ask, so I just, everyone's story to me is a way to, is like I said, it's like a resource. Like I'm building this sort of little library of stories about things I care about so I can say, okay, well, my friend Elizabeth's kid struggled with this and this is what she did. Take it as you will. You know what I mean? Like, so that's what, I, but people always, not always, often people sometimes see that as like me trying to judge them. I'm not. I'm just trying to like, I'm trying to get the whole story so that if somebody else needs the story, I got it ready for them, you know? I think we have to recognize to you that like, it's just different personality types just lead to this stuff. Mm -hmm. And part of it is just labeling that so you can move on. Mm -hmm. I tend to be very defensive. I'm not going to stop being defensive, right? I can work on that in my life. I can mitigate its impacts. But I will probably always be a little bit touchy. And, you know, when I was in high school, I loved that Jewel song. I'm sensitive and I'd like to stay that way because there, there's a good side of that coin, too. You know, that that helps me be more empathetic. There's a good side of that coin, but there's a bad one. And so it's helpful to me, especially with Chad, who I know adores me and is just trying to help me when he asks me questions. But I get defensive. And so to just be able to go, Beth, you're being defensive. OK, that's a thing that I do. I'm going to move on from it now. I mean, that's my biggest piece of advice for Abby. Like, whatever it is for you, if you are reacting to those comments, if you can just go, I'm reacting to that comment. Do I really want to do that? Is that where I want to put my energy? Nah. Okay, I'm going to move on now. Yeah, because that person's going to move on, stop thinking about you immediately, and just keep thinking about themselves. That helped me a lot. When I realized, like, I am obsessing about how this person feels about me. They are definitely not thinking about me, though. They're on They're on to their next thing, with, of which they are the subject of all life and everything else is an object. And so I need to let it go because they're not, they're not stressing about me the way I'm stressing about them. They're stressing about themselves. You know, like, when you can see everybody, like, everyone is the subject of their own mind. And so when you are obsessing about them because you're the subject and you're worried about how they feel about you, guess what? They're not thinking about that. They're thinking... They're probably worried about how somebody else feels about them because they're the subject that helped me a lot to just release that like everybody does it no one else is like stewing about you the way you are stewing about you they're stewing about themselves or they are stewing about you but they're stewing about you not as you but as the character Mm -hmm. for their drama that they've made you the object of their subject (laughs) people i think you're right sarah i think everybody's the star of their own movie in their heads and you only have a finite amount of control over how they build your character for their story. And so if you can just recognize that, you know, and move on from it, I think it would help us all relax a little bit. Well, and all to the people much younger than us in this podcast, spoiler alert, it is a shockingly tiny amount of control you have over how other people perceive you. Just heads up. Wish somebody told me that when I was younger. It is shocking. shocking. And it's shocking. And listen, we I'm still learning that lesson every day. There are times when we say things on our podcast and we get emails about what we said. And I think, that's not what I said. But it's not that somebody's lying about my actual words. They just heard it really differently than I thought I said it. And that's okay. It just happens. Like, this is what makes being alive interesting. This is what makes being a human more interesting than being a dog. Even though some days I'm super jealous of my dog. <laughs> I think the point is we don't have to drown in any of this stuff. Yeah. We don't have to drown in the idea that we should wear makeup. We don't have to drown in other people's choices about their births or their eating or their exercise. We don't have to drown in somebody being mean about us. We can just recognize what's happening and keep moving forward, which is kind of another lesson from our animals, right? Like things go wrong for my dog all the time, but it's not paralyzing for her the way it is for me because her brain just keeps her moving forward. 
So Beth's dog's name is Lucy. So let's all just use Lucy as an inspiration, but not a goal. <laughs> actual spirit animal. An actual spirit animal, <laughs> but not the goal of how we actually want to be. So next mm-hmm. up, we're going to share something inspiring to keep you going throughout the rest of the week. So I just finished The Female Persuasion, a novel by Meg Wolitzer. It's really good. It is about um, Greer Kandinsky who, and her sort of journey through college and how encountering an older, important feminist um, affects her life. It's really, really, really well written. It was on Anne Bogle's summer reading list, which is probably what I'll, will be the source of all the rest of my summer books. But it's it's really wonderful. And I wanted to share a small part of the novel. Greer has had sort of um, a very tough situation arise with this this mentor of her of hers, the older feminist, and she's gone to her mother, who is sort of um, not been a strong influence in her life for comfort, and the mother is trying to basically calm her down and she says what are you afraid of if you go slow you're going to become like dad and me and Greer responds I didn't say that and her mother says I know you didn't but you'll never be us that's not going to happen and you don't always have to feel the compulsion to keep striving towards something for the sake of striving no one will think less of you there are no grades anymore Greer sometimes I think you forget that There are never going to be grades for the rest of your life. So you just have to do what you want to do. Forget about how it looks. Think about what it is. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Nuanced Life. We'll be back with you on Pantsuit Politics on Friday and Tuesday here again next Wednesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.